0: welcome to silicon valley trends a free podcast series published by silicon valley business school i'm your host david smith at silicon valley business school we provide affordable real world online business education to everyone everywhere and guide entrepreneurs towards success with their startup ventures today we're talking about company formation and the founding team this is part of the startup journey series of podcasts dealing with assembling a winning team And you'll find more on this in the entrepreneurship course on the Silicon Valley Business School website and also the Business Organizations course digs into details about company formations as well. Now let's talk to Mark Cameron White, who represents entrepreneurs, forms startups, has closed more than 500 venture capital financings for startups and 200 mergers and acquisitions. If i came in your office as a as just a sole entrepreneur and i was looking to form a company and ideally looking to raise finance and sell this company uh, how would you advise that we set this company up
1: Uh, so if you're going to raise money dave you've got to be a delaware uh, c corporation Um, you could be a limited liability company as well doesn't uh, the llc structure doesn't uh, scale well for institutional investors. Um, you didn't ask that question, but uh, just um, worth uh, right. worth mentioning. So the classic way to do this is uh, you would set up a Delaware C corporation, you would then qualify the business uh, uh, in the state in which you actually conduct operations. Uh, so you, you don't have to physically be in Delaware to be a Delaware uh, C corporation. The, the reason you'd be in Delaware is because the fiduciary uh, laws that relate to decisions made by officers and directors and fiduciaries of the company that affect minority stockholders is way more forgiving in Delaware than uh, other states. Uh, Delaware applies a standard called the business judgment rule to assess whether decisions made by fiduciaries is in the best interest of minority stockholders. Other states, such as California, apply different standard uh, courts uh, in California determine whether or not something is fair, just, and reasonable, which is the legal standard, fair, just, and reasonable, which gives a jury or a court discretion to second guess what officers and directors do on the conduct of uh, the operations of a company and how that affects minority stockholders. The upshot being that in Delaware, decisions made by boards of directors is, uh, is usually upheld by courts given uh, their assessment of what is, uh, what is appropriate for the company using a prudent judgment standard. And that's called the business judgment rule. And it's more defined in Delaware than any other state. Right. So The answer to your question is set it up in Delaware. Venture investors will only want to be in a Delaware company. If you're incorporated in any other state, they're going to have you reincorporate in Delaware as a condition to their investment in your company. And then you qualify in the state where you actually do business. Qualifies means you need a business license. So if you're in Michigan or in Illinois or New York or California, those states will require that you notify the state that you're actually doing business there so that they can tax you and uh, no way around it. You've got to do that. Uh, but uh, for the fiduciary uh, issues that investors are concerned about uh, and liability exposure, you've got to be in Delaware. Uh, so one guy coming into my office saying, where do I go? That's what I would say. And all the shares go to that individual and you're done.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, How many shares of common stock would you suggest they grant themselves?
1: So um, our firm and other firms uh, that do a lot of this work uh, recommend a large number of shares going out, but not too large. So there's mm-hmm. you know, the template, at least in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area for tech companies, is you authorize, I would say, somewhere between 10 to 20 million shares of stock. Authorized shares means that this is mm-hmm. available for issuance, but you don't actually issuance it out until you decide who you, who's going to get those shares. Of, let's say, so you go with 20 million authorized shares of common stock you give out uh, $10 million uh, to to the founders. And it could be one person, it could be two or three people, and you divide it based on percentages between uh, the founding team. The reason you go with such a high number is it brings the price per share down dramatically based on the capital that goes in to set up the company. Um, And it also creates a large number of shares that, uh, um, when you think about it, uh, you've got to put a portion, or typically you would, a portion of your your capitalization into an an equity pool, a stock option plan for other persons that join the company. Uh, New employees, um, uh, um, uh, members of the board of directors, advisors to the company, and optically, if you've got uh, a larger capital base and a larger number of shares in the option pool, uh, then you can give out more options than you would with a, a lower issuance overall to all of the equity holders. So here's the example. If you said you gave out, uh, you wanted to split the ownership, let's say, uh, uh, 15% to an option pool and 85% to the founders and other uh, early uh, uh, key people in the company, then 15% of of a million shares outstanding is 150,000 options. If you take that and expand it to a capital base of 10 million, then your option pool is 1.5 million. And when you give options out, if you give a greater number out of that option pool, even though it only represents 15% in each example, the number of absolute uh, uh, options going out to persons in a higher capital-based company looks better. It feels better. The price is lower. It's nominally priced, um, and and uh, and your your employees think they're getting a better deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not really because it's the same same percentages. But it optically it looks mm-hmm. good. Yeah. And it has the benefit of keeping the price per uh, per option, the exercise price uh, for uh, for options uh, down. So that's why you do it that way, right? And that's actually what you've just described there is exactly how we've formed several of our companies
0: uh, recently. So uh, that's uh, exactly the, the arrangement. Um, when you get two or more co-founders coming in, how do you Advise them to split things up. I mean, is it is it sensible for people to kind of all get the same, or do you really need to have someone with a strong leadership and a more of a share uh, to? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's,
1: that's, a- the, that's the magic question. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and there's no one answer to it, but I'll, I'll give you my answer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, there are cases where equal split among founders makes sense. Uh, there's uh, most cases that is not true. And you've got to do some serious soul searching as a founding group to figure out who's doing what, not only coming into the venture, but what it's going to look like over the next 18 to 24 months. The reason for that is if you set it wrong, people are going to get upset. The founding group is going to argue and debate this forever, and it's going to be a distraction for the company.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So having said that, how do you go about it? Um, I think what you do is you, uh, you, you in the founding group, uh, typically you have people with the same skill set, in which case it, you know, an even split makes sense. If you've got a founding group that is, has diverse skills, you, you, you try to make an assessment um, of uh, which skills are most most important to the to the company, at least in the early going. Because after eighteen to twenty four months, of the company's still around, it's it's doing well, and everything changes, right? And so, um, you know, that's a different uh, different analysis at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not automatic that uh, that the founder, that's the CEO, gets the most. I mean, it could be that early early going, uh, the product development and uh, innovation people are more important than than the CEO, who's more of a person that goes out and raises money and just structures things, more of an operations guy. So I think you've got to look at two points in time. One is going into the venture, who did what leading up to the formation of the company, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, if, uh, if looking back two years, you had, uh, let's say you've got a founding group of, uh, of four guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, two are engineers. One is a business development person and one's a CEO. Um maybe, up, you know, and all the, all the work has been, you know, building a platform, building a solution. Um, and there's been no pre-sale of anything because it had nothing to sell, right? And, and so so you might say, well, there, just um, it may be that 75% of the ownership should go to the two guys that actually built the thing. And then, and then 12.5 each, the CEO and the biz dev guy. Now, that doesn't quite mm-hmm. work out because when you think about it, after you form the company, then the CEO and the biz dev guy kick in and their jobs become more important, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so you've got to have some foresight and say, well, maybe it is 25% each in the example I gave you, but mm-hmm. you know, people have to feel good about it. Now you've got, so one lever is what's the percentage that you give people? The next is, you know, what's the vesting on this? So you could say, well, we'll mm-hmm. give everybody the same, but the vesting is different based on who's going to do what. And if they don't do it, they are not going to get their shares. Mm-hmm. So you could, it could be time based and you have different, uh, different clocks on how uh, shares vest over time. So for example, let, you've got one guy who is a CEO and he's a candidate, but he's not, he hasn't joined the company yet. He's with another company. And he says, I'm not going to, he or she says, I'm not going to join the company until it's funded. Well, uh, you could actually allocate the shares now for that individual or for, and, and you know, you've got your candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has the, has the benefit of issuing sh- shares at nominal value now before the company's been funded or there's nothing material that would value the company. But then the vesting doesn't happen until that person joins the company after an inflection point.
0: Mm-hmm. And the
1: inflection point is either the company raises a certain amount of money or, or it launches or it does something where that person is needed. And if that person then doesn't leave his or her day job and come over and act as CEO, they lose the shares. So you've mm-hmm. got to put formulas in like this that makes mm-hmm. sense
0: for everybody. Right. So it all has to be customized for each person. What they're it well pretty worth, much their is. Their and there's no, there's, you know, there's right. no
1: cookbook recipe that says, well, this is the standard in Silicon Valley, and everybody follows it, and if you don't do this, you know, you're doing it wrong. That's not the right. case. I mean, there right. are standards. You start from that. Um, but then you always custom- – this is customization, and it's, it's unique yeah. to that team. And you have to have uh, ways of clawing the shares back if something's not working out. All right. You know, so, so yeah, we could talk about that if you want.
0: But yeah, okay. Um, what's maybe in the context of this 83B election? Um, could you want to explain to me what what that is and why it matters?
1: Sure. So, uh, Section 83 of the Internal Revenue Code um, uh, relates to uh, uh, really tax on uh, property that is contingent, meaning it's not actually. Um, it's not actually in the hands of the holder, uh, and, and uh, uh, subject to some events that could cause it not to, not to remain, uh, in the ownership of that individual. Um, and, and the way, the way the tax code works is if somebody receives property, they are taxed on the receipt of that property on its fair value when received, um, and the property has to be non-contingent, meaning there aren't conditions to receiving total ownership of that property vesting stock is non-contingent property and uh, uh under the tax code the way it works if if, if you get um, let's say a hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, of shares in a company but it's vesting over a period of time the way the tax code works is you are taxed on the fair value of that stock um, um, uh, either at at receipt um, uh, if it's if it's non-contingent or if it's contingent on every funding event where the contingency goes away, you're taxed at that point in time. So mm-hmm. the problem is that if you get stock when the company is worth, let's say, I don't know, a million dollars, okay, and then over a, and you're, you, you hold your stock over four years, and over four years, the, the value goes from a million dollars to $10 million to $20 million to $50 million. Mm-hmm. Every time uh, your stock, Vest and let's, let's just make this vesting simple. Um, it vests one quarter every year. It vests at a higher valuation of the company and you're taxed on that quarter vesting during that year at the higher valuation of the company. Well, that would be a disaster for anybody that gets shares in the beginning and they're taxed as the company value goes up. It, uh, it, it basically doesn't uh, uh, benefit them on the company's value going up because they haven't sort of locked in the, the value they've created in the company themselves. What you get around that is you're allowed under the tax law to accelerate um, the contingency and elect to pay your tax when you receive the property in the first instance. So essentially what you're doing by filing an 83B election is you're telling the IRS, even though I'm allowed to delay my recognition of the value of the stock I get until it vests, I'm electing to receive and to be taxed now on all of the property I'm getting, even though it's, uh, it's subject to vesting. By doing that, you're, you're taxed 100% on all the shares you get on the date of issuance of those shares, which would be the low valuation that I just gave you, for example, at, at, at a at $1 million dollars for the company. Mm-hmm. So if, so if you, you held 10% of the company at that time, 10% of a million is $100,000. So you're, you're taxed on $100,000 worth of stock versus on $20 million of the stock, yeah. Uh, value if the, if the company goes up dramatically in value. Mm-hmm. You've got to file an 83B election and make that decision um, by filing a form within 30 days of receiving your stock. If you don't do it within 30 days, you lose the ability then to make the election. Uh, now, uh, there are cases, and it happens all the time, where people just don't meet that deadline. And there are fixes and ways to get around that, which are somewhat awkward, and you know, but you can do it. Uh, but it's kind of an embarrassment to miss that election in a window and you don't make the election. So uh, it is critical uh, for, uh, for founders of companies, uh, for uh, or, you know, anyone receiving an, an equity right in the company to file that 83B if you get stock. Now, mm-hmm. an 83B relates to property that is stock. An option is not deemed to be property because an option itself is a contractual right to receive stock when you exercise. So you don't file an 83 election when you get an option, a vesting option. If and when you exercise that option and there is vesting that remains on shares that, uh, uh, that uh, you received on the exercise of the option, then you would file an 83 election. It is the case with most companies that they don't allow you to exercise uh, an option for shares until that option is vested. So the shares you get would be fully vested and you don't have to file an 83B. However, um, uh, uh, companies in in many instances allow an early exercise of the option before it's fully vested in order to avoid uh, ATM alternative minimum tax uh, for certain high compensated individuals. Um, And so that early exercise allows you to get all the shares before the option has vested, but the outstanding Vesting requirements on the option then transfer over to the stock and it then becomes vesting stock And in that instance, you've got to file an 83 b election on the exercise So you've got to be acutely aware of this requirement when you get uh, when you get stock.
0: Yeah, and who? um, Who typically is responsible for filing the 83 b would it be the accountant or the 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 lawyer or the individual themselves,
1: (laughs) you know good question
0: I know because we failed to uh, once in a previous company, before we had you as our lawyer, we failed to file the 83B and we thought it was the lawyer's fault. He didn't think it was his fault. No, one, everyone was pointing fingers at everybody else.
1: Finger. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. so you've, got to, you've got to basically make that clear uh, among uh, the participants at the outset. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: You know, most firms don't like to take responsibility for it because it's, it's, a, it's a malpractice and liability for them. So what they say is, well, we'll give you the 83B election, we'll tell you to file it but you file it. And if you don't file it, then it's your problem. Now our firm, we take responsibility for that because all the time we have uh, founders that just, they just miss it. Right. And mm-hmm. shame on us if we don't file that on behalf of the, uh, of the company. And even actually quite honestly, the, re- the, the, the reality is, even if we don't take responsibility for it or a firm doesn't, and there's a financing and the investors want to do their diligence and find out that a founder has not, uh, uh, filed the 83b election when he or she should have, uh, it becomes a real problem for everybody, and 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 the law firms, you know, is deemed to be responsible anyway because they should have told these guys or forced them one way or the other to file the 83b. So we recognize the reality of that, and our firm, we we just take responsibility for it. So it's, it's automatic. We just do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much, but Mark. I know you're busy. Um, if it's okay, we'll call you in future with other questions and uh, really appreciate your help here.
1: Okay, Dave. Sounds great. Good all talking right. to you. Thanks.
0: The latest startups I've formed myself have been Delaware Corporations, created to the Silicon Valley formula with 20 million shares of authorized share capital, then 10 million shares were sold to founders. These are all common stock. Uh, one-tenth of a cent each, and three million shares allocated to an equity incentive plan where they can be used to grant stock options. So as Mark mentioned, venture capital investors like Delaware law, and you have to form your corporation in Delaware if you have any hope of raising funding in Silicon Valley or the tech sector. If you've formed an LLC, or you've formed a corporation in California or another state, you'd need to shut it down and reincorporate in Delaware if you want to raise any venture capital funding. You see, most companies in the U.S. are incorporated in Delaware and virtually any form of dispute has already been decided by the Delaware courts. So the law is pretty reliable and predictable. The particular sections of law that the investors like relate to how Delaware courts treat the holders of preferred stock. You can form a Delaware corporation yourself, but you won't get the bylaws, equity incentive plans and the other documents that venture investors are looking for when they're doing due diligence on your company. For those, you need to get a lawyer that's not only experienced with company formations, but has a lot of experience of venture financings, mergers and acquisitions, because they know what structures are acceptable and which ones are not. There are some things to consider, though, when forming your company in Delaware. My accountant cannot understand why anyone would want to do this former company in Delaware because it creates more work for a Delaware corporation doing business in California. My old accountant paid income taxes for my companies in Delaware as well as California. You don't need to pay income taxes in Delaware if your business is in California or anywhere outside Delaware. You do need to pay Delaware Franchise Tax, and you might get a surprise after you've formed a corporation with millions of shares of stock. The Franchise Tax Bill you get from Delaware each year will be around $200,000. And this can be a bit of a shock, especially if you only inject a few thousand dollars into the company. But don't panic. You don't need to pay more than around $400 a year to Delaware unless you've capitalized the company and paid in millions of dollars. Delaware has two alternative ways of calculating your annual franchise tax. One is based on the number of shares you've issued and the other is based on the capitalization. So if you capitalize a company with only a few thousand dollars to get it started, your franchise tax will be about $400 a year. In a future episode, we'll dig into the preferred stock situation in more detail. But if you think of stock as a pizza, the common stock held by founders and employees is like a bare pizza crust where the preferred stock held by venture capital and other investors has cheese, pepperoni, and a wide assortment of delicious toppings. Delaware courts have been very supportive of preferred stockholders. So that's where the investors get their insistence that companies are incorporated in Delaware. Now, Mark cannot discuss his clients. There's a confidentiality relationship between them. But one of the companies his law firm formed was Tesla Motors. And according to an article by Wired magazine, Martin Eberhard, a founder of Tesla, sued Elon Musk in 2009 for claiming that he was the founder of Tesla when the lawsuit states that Elon Musk came into the company as an investor sometime after the company was initially formed and then he proceeded to push eberhard out the lawsuit explains that with his preferred stock musk took three of the seven board seats and he threatened to convert sufficient preferred stock to common stock in order to take the controlling fourth board seat which would give him the power to fire eberhard as ceo if he controlled the board of directors because the board of directors is elected by the shareholders. The board acts as a board. It has the power to hire and fire the CEO and actually has legal responsibility for running the company. Um, No individual investor has power to really do anything. Uh, Director on the board of directors has power to do anything. Everything is done through a vote of the board of directors as a whole. Um, So uh, Elon Musk could take the fourth board seat Which would give him control, then give him the ability to take over a CEO if he converted his preferred stock to common. So obviously, there must have been some common stock. uh, The common stock shareholders had certain rights to vote uh, in their own directors. So the lawsuit disclosed that Eberhard earned a salary of two hundred thousand dollars and acted as CEO. Two hundred thousand dollars, in terms of you know large corporations like uh, Tesla, is not a lot of money for the CEO. But of course, founders in Silicon Valley-style startups are mostly motivated by their stock and stock options, and uh, often they'll work for as little as a dollar a year in terms of salary. Now, Eberhard reluctantly accepted the offer, according to the lawsuit, of an additional 250,000 shares of common stock and a seat on the board of advisors. Board of advisors is uh, a body that doesn't have the fiduciary responsibilities of the board of directors and uh, we'll talk about that in some future podcasts so eberhard resigned but then tesla terminated the severance package claiming eberhard had violated a non-disparagement clause and removed him from the board of advisors in a bizarre twist the lawsuit also claimed that tesla had smashed Eberhard's own Tesla Roadster vehicle after he left and delivered it to him um, with the front uh, needing 75 different parts to get, be fixed. So whether they're founders or investors claiming to be founders, teams often fall apart under the stress of the startup journey. But there's no way around it. And you're certainly going to have to assemble a team if you're going to build a successful startup. You can't do it all on your own. The skills you bring together and the way your team collaborates can determine if your startup is going to reach a successful destination or if infighting will hamper your progress. Picking the team for your startup journey is part judgment, part skill and part luck. Do you remember those long, arduous road trips with friends and family members that seemed to get more irritating the longer the journey went on? We've all had them, tempers fray when previously friendly travelling companions grow tired and irritable, especially when the trip doesn't go smoothly and the party fails to reach its chosen destination on schedule. I read that scientists have figured out that putting several astronauts into a spaceship for a mission that could take several years would create the perfect conditions for murder. Bear this in mind when you pick your founding partners, investors, executives, directors, advisors, managers, bankers, lawyers, accountants, consultants, suppliers, contractors, and employees, for this long and arduous startup road trip. Pick traveling companions that all target the same destination. If there's any disagreement about where the party is headed, you're definitely in for trouble sooner or later avoid cannibals following from our discussion in one of the earlier podcasts about the donna party that got stuck up in the sierra mountains in midwinter and has survived by eating uh the their uh comrades you need to pick personality types that support the team and don't cannibalize their own team members when the going gets tough. Lashing out at colleagues can be counterproductive when everyone is under intense stress. Pick good navigators, people that can read maps, take bearings, fix a position, and help plot out the best route forward. These people can be very, very useful on a startup journey. You want to avoid traveling companions that are looking for a chauffeur-driven limo service. You want candidates that are prepared to walk, run, climb, jump, scramble, do whatever it takes to make progress on the journey. Pick team members that can help identify the provisions the team's going to need and then help gather them together. The provisions in a startup journey are typically uh, funding. So if you can find people that can help you raise financing or help you get the equipment and things you need to uh to get your startup going, then they're going to be very useful. You want to avoid the person that would steal the last cookie, deny stealing it, and then wait for someone else to buy more. And I think as a general rule, it's very good to te- keep your team as small as possible. Large teams are very difficult to control to keep, and keep them heading in, in the same direction. And pick people that know the route. If you can find people that have been on this journey before, that can be very, very valuable. If you have people in your startup that have taken companies through the startup process previously, uh, that will be very, very helpful on your journey. You'll pick up new team members as the journey progresses. But at the formation stage, at a minimum, the founding team consists of you, the entrepreneur, and the lawyer that handles the various aspects of the company formation. And when you start a new business, you have to decide whether you want to go it alone or bring in partners. It's natural to feel more exposed and vulnerable when you go it alone. But bringing in partners needs to be carefully thought through and can easily destroy the business. It can be very tempting to invite your buddies to join your startup, inviting them in before the company has any momentum. However, it can be very costly. Don't be surprised if they ask for equal partnerships. Equal partnerships are never exactly equal. Two partners may have the same stock options and remuneration packages, but it's impossible for two people to make precisely the same level of contribution. One partner is sure to make more, do more work and take more responsibility than the other. How would you feel if you were working 80-hour weeks while your equal partner was sipping gin and tonics on the beach? It can happen, it does happen, believe me. Sometimes collaboration sparks ideas and releases untapped talents. John Lennon's collaboration with Paul McCartney in the 1960s resulted in some of the most popular music in history. I don't think they would have achieved any success without this collaboration, however. The Beatles was essentially Lennon's baby. He needed other musicians and he offered McCartney an equal founding position in the band. If he'd written a few songs and generated some momentum beforehand, I'm sure that Paul, uh, John Lennon would have been able to bring in Paul McCartney on better terms, and the relationship might have actually gone on for a few more years. After the band split up, Paul Simon said he had dinner with Lennon in New York, and John Lennon explained that the reason for the split was that McCartney was challenging him for leadership of the band. Perhaps this wouldn't have happened if Lennon had set things up differently at the start. I'd have loved to have been a fly on the wall at that dinner. Paul Simon also was clearly the the driving force in Simon and Garfunkel. He wrote almost all the songs and Garfunkel seemed to get half the credit. Lennon and Simon must have been bitching about how they'd do it differently in future. And they obviously learned from the experience and did do it differently next time around. Simon hired musicians instead of partnering with them. They didn't expect to be full partners or challenged for control as they realized it was Simon's baby and clearly accepted that he generated the momentum before they appeared on the scene. John Lennon did the same after he reappeared from hibernation and so did Paul McCartney. Sure, a musician invited to an audition for Paul McCartney and Wings you had no hopes of getting an equal share of the pie or becoming the leader of the band. Paul did bring his wife Linda and this partnership seemed to go as smoothly as possible. Husband and wife teams have been quite successful in high tech as well as in music. John Lennon and Paul McCartney each had a lot of success after the Beatles broke up. So did Paul Simon after he split for Mark Garfunkel. However, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards found that their only real success came from working together with the Rolling Stones. They tried solo careers, but the Stones generated so much momentum as a band that they kept being drawn back together and continued selling out the largest stadiums for more than 50 years. Chuck Berry used to tour the world playing gigs with different bands in each venue. He would simply hire a band to support him in each city and pay them a fixed price. Chuck Berry was clearly a solo artist rather than a band team member. So there are different ways of achieving success and it depends on many different factors. The question for your startup is not really whether you need a collaborator, you do. Even Chuck Berry needed someone to play drums. The question is really, at at what stage and on what terms do you bring in your collaborators? The more momentum you can generate yourself, the easier it will be to agree reasonable terms with the people you bring in later. If you hire the lawyer, get the company formed, create the business plan, then bring in collaborators, you'll have put yourself in a strong position to negotiate terms with them. Having the lawyer arrange the terms will really help you set up a structure that makes sense and that your team members will find acceptable. So in this episode, we talked about picking your founding team, forming the company, and some of the things you need to think about when forming a new venture. Like a rocket that's slightly misaligned when it's launched, your startup could go way off track if you screw things up at the formation stage. You might not need co-founders, but you will need a good lawyer to set things up properly. You'll find more information on this topic, including dozens of courses, thousands of videos and reading materials on our Silicon Valley Business School website at svbs.co. You're welcome to join me in my Silicon Valley Business School chat room, where I can answer your questions and help you navigate your startup towards success. I hope you'll join us for future podcasts don't forget to subscribe so you get new episodes as and when they're released and please rate us in your podcast player as this will help us get the word out to the entrepreneurs and the other people we're trying to help with this podcast series that's it for today hope you tune in to the next silicon valley trends the podcast for innovators and entrepreneurs